Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing. Uh, it's, it's appropriate that we um, begin this time of reflection and enter into God's Word uh, with story. Uh, because we're entering into um, a part of the Bible that tells the story of the church. Uh, and we'll find that, that so much of God's Word um, isn't just um, theology and dogmatic statements, uh, but it, it draws us into this story of how God is alive and how God is at work. Um, we are starting in the, uh, a series in the book of Acts, and just a note about the author. Um, Acts is written by Luke, and Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as well. And something that we might not be aware of when we look at um, Scripture, and specifically at the New Testament, is just how much Luke has written. Um, if you look at the, the New Testament there, you can break it up in different ways. One way is just by breaking it up by verses, and there are... 7,957 verses, or just generally 8,000 verses. Um, of that, 2,035 are written by Paul, um, 1,407 are written by John, um, but how many do you think that Luke has written? If, if we think 2,000 by Paul, or just over 2,000, or 1,400 by John, when you think of the, uh, the Gospel of John and all of Revelation and the epistles... Well, Luke has written 1, 000, or 2,157, so more than Paul. This is 27% of the New Testament, 27.1, um, if we're being more precise there, uh, for those that are um, keep, keeping me uh, on track with the math. That's a, a lot, and, and I don't think we often... Um, pay that much attention to this story, and particularly how this is meant to be seen as one uh, continuous story. Uh, Luke draws on the, the same themes that he does in the Gospel of Luke and carries that in to the story of Acts, uh, because the church is connected to that story. This is Jesus sending his disciples, sending his Holy Spirit uh, to equip and empower the church. And that is why we're starting with Acts when we are looking at this question, what is the church? Uh, we're not going to be looking at all 28 chapters, as I said before, uh, but we're going to be zeroing in on passages that we've selected that have something to say about what the church is. Now, the central character throughout Luke and Acts is, of course, God. Throughout the gospel Luke of Luke, we see how Jesus is carrying out God's plan of redemption, and this is continued through the book of Acts in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And today, we're going to be dropping in on a popular story that talks, or it centers around this person named Saul, um, who is interchangeably also known as Paul. They kind of use both those names, someone that wrote the other 25% of the New Testament. And I want to focus here, when we look at this, we're just going to read it in a moment, starting in Acts chapter 9. 
when we read this, to focus on how God's action here. That while Saul is the primary character, God is the one who is orchestrating the action. Notice how Jesus is directing both Saul and Ananias through this passage. So Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard a sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision and said, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on the straight street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come to his place, or come to him and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the past number of months, in conversation with different people from the church, um, in conversations with people, um, with other pastors, uh, one of the questions that has come up over and over again is, how are the changes that we see in the world today going to impact how we do church? Um, how has online attendance changed what church is? Uh, there's this sense in which people are asking this question in a fresh way. What 
is the church? What's at the foundation of who we are as the church? And there's, there's several different places that we can start when we talk about what the church is. Uh, for one, we could talk about what the church does, that the church is fundamentally a worshiping community, that the church is something that goes out in mission, that, that brings... Um, that is an instrument of God's salvation. Uh, we could also talk about in the church in terms of who the church is, uh, that we are the church. There's this fundamental recognition that the church isn't just something that happens on Sundays. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is or what building you're in. If you're part of God's people, you're part of the church. Um, there's often this clarification that the church building isn't the church, uh, something I often find confusing because this building is called a church. Uh, but the clarification is there to remind us that though it is called a church, it does not constitute the church. The church is not bound to a specific location. We are called to be God's people wherever we are. Uh, those are different places that we can start, but that's not where we are going to start today. Uh, today, I want to dwell and explore the idea of the church being or having a divine human dimension to it. Rather than looking at what the church does or what the church is or, or who is in the church, we are going to begin with something more fundamental about what the church is in its very essence. This language of the church having a divine element to it is something that we should be pretty careful about. And I want to use this different sort of language uh, because it, it helps us hopefully to hear it fresh. If you've been in the church for a while, you've likely heard of this church as God's church. There's this language of the church being the body of Christ. And, and some of that language can just be so familiar to us that um, it just washes over us. We don't really have it sit with us. So I just want us to consider for a moment that the church has something within it that is divine and something that is human. In our passage today, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus in this line is making that close connection between the church and himself. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus, the Son of God. What you do to these people, you do to me. I wonder what Saul initially thought when he heard these words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I wonder how... Often Paul would meditate on these words afterwards, how they would echo around in his mind, coming back to him time and time again, how these words impacted his theology as he wrote letters to the church, this deep identification between Jesus and the church. One image that has a striking connection to the story is the image of the church as the body of Jesus. To attack this body is to attack him. Uh, listen to these examples strewn throughout his letters. 
1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Romans chapter 12 says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Or Colossians chapter 1, Christ, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that he himself will have first place in everything. And there's many other examples um, in these books. There's also, uh, it comes up in Ephesians chapter 1. It happens again in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is drawing on this image again, showing this deep connection of Christ and the church. Paul seems to have internalized this encounter in Acts chapter 9 with Jesus and allowed it to flavor his understanding of what the church is. The church is not just a social club where people discuss God. It's not a group of people united in their mission to make the world a better place. The church is more than that. It is divinely constituted. It is the living body of Christ. Now, for Paul, he would have to understand this, I think, more deeply than just a metaphor. So how is it that he looks at the resurrected and ascended body of Christ and connects it to this church, which is on earth? Um, To be able to make that connection, he has to have a deep understanding of what the Spirit is, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a central role when we look at this broader narrative that Luke is telling. When we look at the Gospel of Luke and move it into the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit coming over and over again. The the Holy Spirit um, first comes up in a big way in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. It's one of the 316s of of the Bible. Uh, Not John 316, though, but Luke In this passage, the the people are asking John the Baptist if he's the Messiah, and he responds, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, this is at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Um, This is Luke chapter 3. If we remember, Luke chapter 2 is where Jesus is born. Uh, This is before Jesus enters into his ministry, and Luke chooses to introduce this ministry with the idea that Jesus will be the one who brings the Holy Spirit. There's something significant about that action of of bringing God's presence in a new way, constituting a new type of indwelling, a new understanding of what it means to be the people of God. The rest of Luke in Acts is the playing out of this. Uh, Luke 24, verse 49, so just four verses from the ending of Luke, he goes back to that language of, of the Holy Spirit. The final words of Jesus in instructing his disciples is to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Spirit. And in case having the Spirit um, kind of bookend Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke isn't enough, He begins the acts with that same reminder 
Acts begins with Jesus saying, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And following this, we have Luke, or Acts chapter 2, which is about the Spirit coming and indwelling the church, constituting the church. It's kind of the, the birth of the church in that time. And you find the language of the Holy Spirit coming over and over again. You find it in Acts chapter 10 and 15 when we look at how the church expands to the Gentiles. The, the gifting of the Spirit is, is this proof that the church is to extend to the all, all of the nations. And, and why is all of this important, that this is this major theme that carries us through? Because this is the divine foundation of the church. If you look throughout Acts, you will see that the sign of the church is in the gifting of the Holy Spirit, that the church begins with God. It is through the Holy Spirit that people can claim this connection to the resurrected Jesus who is in heaven. Jesus' claim, why do you persecute me, is more than simply just this vague identifying with these people. The persecution of the church is persecuting people whom through the Spirit are participating in the life of Christ. This is why the Gospel of Luke and Acts are meant to be read as this single unit. Because they tell the same story, they have these parallels that draw them through between Jesus' ministry and the church. Where Jesus is known in the breaking of bread in Luke um, 24, so is the church. You'll find time and time again that they are known in this breaking of the bread together. Jesus experiences suffering and persecution, and so does the church. Jesus performs miracles, and so does the church. Jesus welcomes the outcast and looks after those who are oppressed in the society, and so does the church. This is not because the church is just filled with people who are extraordinary, unique, and are um, doing all of this from their own efforts, but because the Spirit comes and equips them to live a life that's modeled after Christ. The church, when we look at it, doesn't start where Jesus shows up in Luke. It doesn't start when the disciples hear Jesus' teachings. The church doesn't start when the disciples are sent in Luke. When, when they are, uh, this Luke chapter 11, where they're, they're sent out and they go and perform signs of the kingdom. The church doesn't start with the resurrection and the disciples being witnesses to the resurrected Christ. The church doesn't start with the ascension, where Jesus goes to rule all of creation from the throne room of God. The church starts in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells amongst the people. So when we see the Spirit comes, we should recognize um, this is a big thing, because this isn't just some spiritual force that comes. This is the Holy Spirit one of the persons of the three-in-one God who comes and constitutes the church. 
sometimes we limit our idea of the Holy Spirit to something that just gives some of these um, charismatic spiritual giftings. Uh, we look at the Spirit as just something that, that helps us to act better. But the Spirit is more than that. The Holy Spirit doesn't just show up simply to empower the church to do what Jesus told his disciples to do. It is the bringing this people into relationship with God. The Spirit is the person of the Trinity and what unites us to Jesus, making the church the body of Christ. Now, we begin with this reminder of the church having this divine foundation because it avoids the traps that we sometimes fall into when we start elsewhere. It's not just a group of people trying to do nice things, nor is it a social club where we read the Bible and get to know each other. The church is what happens when God sends his Holy Spirit. It is the ongoing story of Jesus' salvation. It is the way that Jesus continues his presence in the world. And this means that the church is not periphery in the Christian life. Uh, being part of the church is central in what it means to be Christian. This is the community that we are saved into. Now, I want to say this uh, to remind myself of the importance of the church in light of the many different changes that we see, uh, in light of the questions that people ask. That how is the church going to be different? How, how will doing online services, for some people it's been over a year and a half, how will that change our view of what it means to be part of the church? Uh, while there are changes in the structures, there may be changes in how we've been able to attend the church, there, the core of what makes us the church is unchanging. Uh, one of the practices that we started doing at the beginning of the pandemic was lighting the Christ candle. The Christ candle reminds us of, of the presence of Christ with us. Uh, and another thing that it reminds us is the spirit that the same spirit that dwells with us here as we do our services is the same that is there in people's homes as they also light the Christ candle. That at the core of what we are doing at the church, it involves the presence of God being amongst us. Now let's turn also to look at who is in the church and how they got to be part of it, because that is also part of what we read. But this, too, we'll see, is centered in on God's work, that it is God who constitutes the church, but God who is also equipping it along the way. The story tells us of Saul's inclusion into the church, but we might notice how passive Saul is as God rescues him through God's grace. Remember, too, how Saul begins this passage. Uh, Saul begins in verse 1, um, breathing out murderous threats. He's got murder on his breath. He is persecuting the church. In his embrace of Saul, we might hear an echo of Jesus' words in the cross from Luke chapter 23, where Jesus says of the people around him that are persecuting him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The Jesus who forgives those who persecute him in this passage 
shows the extent of his forgiveness. He doesn't just forgive Saul here, um, just doesn't say you're, you're forgiven and just go on your separate ways. He, he forgives them and invites him into this deep relationship. At the end of our story, we have the Holy Spirit coming upon Paul, this indwelling of God. With Paul, we have this idea beyond forgiveness um, into belonging, this deep love that Christ has. We have in this story this similar invitation for each of us. If we, we put ourselves in the place of Saul here as people who, by God's grace, God invites us and God offers that forgiveness and that love, that somehow in the midst of my disobedience, in the midst of getting things wrong, God makes himself present and works out his blessings in and through us. Uh, the story, when we look at Saul from that way, contains hope uh, for people like myself and for you. That despite our shortcomings, despite the fact that we don't always get it right, we are offered forgiveness and belonging. What's more, we find in this passage, it's not only Saul that, that receives this forgiveness and this belonging and this inclusion from Jesus, uh, but it's actually modeled by the disciples. So now we, as the people who are included in this church, we get to model that for others. And this is seen in Ananias. Look at Ananias in this passage and how he um, introduces himself to Saul in calling him brother. Uh, do we have the ability to reflect Jesus' forgiveness like Ananias does, where he welcomes a recent enemy of his, one that was persecuting him, as a brother? Uh, we're reminded throughout this story that being elected to this church with God's forgiveness does not mean uh, that it's going to be very easy. It's not, um, when we look at Saul, uh, it's not about his wants. It's not about his needs being met. It is about Saul meeting God and having his wants and needs realigned around Christ and the church. This might be strange for those of us who are used to having it the other way around. We often see the church as only something that is meant to feed us or to help us or to make things easier for us. But for Saul, that's not what he encounters. The path that God calls him on is actually introduced with suffering. Jesus' words are to Ananias, I will show him, I will show Saul, how much he must suffer for in my name. Uh, it's been said Jesus doesn't run um, a PR campaign like, like a modern um, business. He's, he's not pulling any punches. He's not just showing the, the nice stuff. He is going to the difficult things right away. It's clear and straightforward. Suffering is part of the deal. It appears that the followers of Christ could assume 
a similar reception that Jesus got. Uh, this is something different from just a story of Jesus coming in and making things easier. Yes, Jesus does come to heal wounds, but the life of being with Christ is far from easy. For Paul, it wasn't about becoming independent and successful or this complete removal of pain. When he encounters Christ, he moves from being someone who is healthy and powerful and independent to one who is blinded, having to be led around by others. And he is promised a life that will involve suffering. This sort of story doesn't really make sense unless the most important person in this story, or if, this, if the most important person in the story is Saul, it won't really make sense. If we as individuals make ourselves the center of the story, rather than seeing the big story that God is inviting us into, we'll miss the point and it won't make sense. The meaning for Saul could only be found as he sees himself being pulled into God's bigger story, the story of God's plan of redemption that's happening through God's work in the church. So we see that God not only constitutes the church here, but God is the active agent, calling people who appear to be enemies and turning them into brothers. This is the church that we are called to be a part of. It's the same church. God calls us to be the spirit-driven church as God-directed people. We live into the same story. That, that God's story doesn't end with Luke chapter 24, but God's story continues. Luke writes the second letter showing that continuation of the story to let the people know that the story of God's presence and continuing rescue continues in and through the church. And as we'll see, uh, the fact that God is at the helm doesn't mean that there is conflict along the way. After all, the church is divine and human. It has this human component to it, too. And human brokenness shows itself again and again. Yet this is the way that God has chosen to work. In the midst of redeeming people, it's through God's work in us. It is through this that, God, uh, that the church perseveres and brings the healing that it is meant to bring to the world through the Spirit. So what is the church? We remember first that the church is the body of Christ, constituted by the Spirit. Its foundation is one beyond any worries of the fears and changes from this world. For the church has the creator of the world at its foundation, working in and through it. The church is the way that God chooses to make himself present in the world through people who, like Saul, were chosen by God to be God's instruments. So may we find our meaning and our bearings as we center ourselves in Christ and in the community that he calls us to. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. 
for stories that reveal who you are and how you work in the world. As we take time to look at the beginnings of the church, help us to see how that same spirit is working in us and drawing us into relationship to Christ. May we have confidence in knowing that our God is who constitutes the church, who started it, who keeps it, who leads it. Equip us as the body of Christ here on earth. May our actions reflect your forgiveness, your love, and your goodness. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.